You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Tevi Troy, Ph.D. He has an incredibly amazing career, still going strong, and has written some terrific books. If you love presidential history, White House history, you need to pick these up. His latest is Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump which the Wall Street Journal listed as one of the five best political books of 2020. Dr. Troy is a best-selling presidential historian, former White House aide, and deputy secretary of health. He's also a one-time Indianapolis resident, and we're going to talk to him about that. His other books are Shall We Wake the President? Two Centuries of Disaster Management from the Oval Office, What Jefferson Read, Ike watched and Obama tweeted 200 years of popular culture in the White House is the author of over, I guess I should say more than more than 300 articles. And they've appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Washington Post, Politico, and many other publications. Tevi, thank you very much for coming on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Hey, thanks, Robert. Really appreciate it. And I just love that title, Leaders and Legends. You don't talk about small things when you've got leaders and legends on, on the docket. Well, quite frankly, we got lucky. It was the, uh, you know, it, the, it was sullied by the Big Ten and their divisions several years ago. But when I went to find a name for the podcast, that was available. Shocking. And, and to be candid, a lot of the folks that we've had on the podcast have fit that description, whether it's Clint Hill, the Secret Service agent who climbed aboard the Kennedy limousine in Dallas in November of 63, Governor Mitch Daniels, Mayor Greg Ballard. We've also been lucky to have some historians on, and we're glad that you're joining the ranks. Uh, Kate Anderson Brower was on our podcast. and uh, uh, I read her book. It was terrific. Craig yeah. Fairman, who's a buddy of yours. Terrific uh, guy. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about your career before we talk about uh, your uh, forays into authorship. Uh, at certain point, I'm guessing you got turned on by politics. How young were you when that happened? And do you have some first kind of political memory as you walked, as you got through the process of, of growing up and getting an education? Yeah, I grew up in New York in the 1970s, which your listeners may not remember was a big mess. I mean, we talk about problems that we face today, and there are some problems. But New York in the 1970s was a disaster. Blackouts, crime, graffiti, dysfunction. The city went bankrupt. In fact, one of the famous headlines from that era was when Gerald Ford refused to do a federal buy bailout of New York City. The headline in the Daily News was Ford to NY drop dead. And <laughs> it was a legend. So you you up, the legend. That's a legendary headline. You grew up in the city. 
I grew up in Queens. Okay. But I went to school in Manhattan. So I had to take the subway every day, which was dicey. And I looked around. And I said, God, there's got to be a better way. I mean, I had great love for this country. And, uh, you know, I know my parents and their ancestors escaped from Europe. And you know, it wouldn't have been good to stay there. And so I really felt very strongly about this country and what the promise of this country is. But I also saw that things weren't working. And so I got interested in getting involved in politics. I worked in a very minor junior voluntary capacity for the Reagan campaign in 1984 when I was still in high school. And then I moved to Washington after I graduated college and got involved in working at think tanks. I worked at the American Enterprise Institute. And that's where I really got the bug about the writing game and how thinkers can help influence leaders and legends and how they can help shape the direction of policy. New York City in the 1970s is the decade of John Lindsay, Abraham Beam. I'm not sure when Koch came in. 1977. Is that when his first he first won in 77? Yep. Um, but it's also the decade, and you were there, when uh, Son of Sam was uh, rampaging through the city. Uh, December, I believe, 1980, when John Lennon was shot. Do you remember those historical events, and do you remember the effect they had on the city? Oh, absolutely. My brother is older than I, and he kind of had long hair. And my mom, I remember, was being very was nervous that he might get shot by Son of Sam because Son of Sam would shoot couples in, in cars. And one of the things was that he would shoot guys. They thought that he would shoot a couple if the guy had long hair. I don't know if it's exactly true, but that, you know they were looking for any clues they could find on that. So that, that was uh, very distressing. And there's actually a legendary story about a Beam who is called to police headquarters. And he's in the midst of this very tight Democratic primary, and he's in a real, real difficult situation for re-election. And he goes down to police headquarters one night because he hears that they've captured Son of Sam. And he sees this kind of scruffy guy with a olive army jacket that people wear in the 70s. And he thinks that that is the plainclothes detective who broke the case. And he goes to shake the man to see photographers all snap pictures. And David Garth, who was his media consultant, called it the photo op from hell. And I thought that moment really summed up the New York New York City in the seventies. Say that say that story again, just very quickly. We had a connection issue. Please, uh, Abraham Beam goes to the police station. So Abe Beam Abe Beam goes to police headquarters. He's called. And he's told that they've captured the son of Sam and he's in this very difficult reelection campaign. So he really needs the PR boost. And he goes to police headquarters and he sees this kind of scruffy guy with an olive drab jacket. And he thinks that this guy is the plainclothes detective who broke the case. And he goes to shake his hand only to be greeted by the manacled hands of David Berkowitz, <laughs> son of Sam himself. And he shakes hands with the mayor and David Garth, who was the mayor's, PR consultant, his media guru, said it was the photo op from hell. And did and did uh, Mayor Beam win that election? No, he lost in this very tight primary where he was up against Ed Koch, who won, Mario Cuomo, who went on to become governor, and his son is now governor, and Bella Abzug, who was kind of the darling of the feminist left. So it was a very crowded Democratic primary in 1977. Which, if you could choose a, a TV series that most accurately portrays New York City, which which would you choose? Well, in at the time in the 70s, I happened to love The Odd Couple with Felix and Oscar and the, the kind of messy roommate and the neat roommate. And the interesting thing about it is it really does capture something about New York City in the 70s. Crime is a constant feature in that show. They get mugged, their apartments robbed, their cars vandalized. It's a constant thing. And then if you look at a TV show in New York in the 90s, let's say Friends or Seinfeld, there's occasional mentions of mugging, but it's very rare. You don't see their apartments getting broken into. You don't see them them scared to walk down the street. There's a real shift in New York between the 70s and the 90s. Rudy Giuliani has taken some hits, I think it's fair to say, based on his service to now former President Donald Trump. But what Giuliani was able to do to New York City in the 90s is simply amazing. Uh, I don't have any frame of reference because I'm not from there and I didn't spend any time there, but just the 
just the impact he had. And obviously, I think we should give credit to Mayor Bloomberg, who came behind him. What did you think or what do you think of Giuliani's performance just as as mayor? Yeah, well, first of all, the the, the turnaround started with Ed Koch, who started saying we're going to punish criminals. And then David Dinkins wins against Koch, and he has this softer approach towards criminals, and New York City really goes into a tailspin in the Dinkins years. And Giuliani, who lost the first time to Dinkins, mm-hmm. then runs again, defeats Dinkins, and he brings in all these smart ideas from places like the Manhattan Institute about community policing and keeping statistics and the broken windows theory. And these things worked. I know there's a, a movement these days to, to criticize them or debunk them. But the truth is they work. They helped New York City turn around. And it was palpable. You felt it. New York City was a safer place to be. And in fact, after the 1990s, I used to walk across Central Park. And I realized, even though I spent my whole life in New York, I didn't know my way through Central Park. And the reason was because I'd never entered Central Park in the 70s and 80s because it wasn't safe to do so. Where were you on September 11th, 2001? And what were your reactions as you as you saw your your hometown being attacked? Well, I was a political appointee in the George W. Bush administration. I was working at the Department of Labor and I saw the first plane hit and I said, wow, that's weird. Why would a plane do that? I thought it was some kind of accident. And, and there had been an incident where a plane, I guess, almost hit the Empire State Building years before. And but it just it wasn't something anything that happened because air traffic control had improved. And then when the next one hit, it was like a blow to the stomach. And I remember I had to walk home that day because the traffic was shut down in Washington. The metro was shut down. My walk home was only about three miles. I knew people who walked 10, 12 miles to get home that day. It was a total mess. And I realized we were just in a new era. And you asked earlier, I didn't really answer the question about uh, Giuliani. And look, he's obviously discredited today. And the things he did in the Trump administration, especially towards the end, are, are really are, are just unforgivable. But in September of 2001, that guy was an American hero. And it really tells you something, how you just have to manage and care for and tend to your reputation. And if you do things that damage your reputation, it could damage the good work of a lifetime. You received your Ph.D. in American civilization from the University of Texas. What does that mean, American civilization? It's a multidisciplinary approach to history. I wanted to learn American history, but I also was interested in culture. I was interested in politics. And in fact, I wrote a book about the intersection of culture and politics. It was called What Jefferson Read, Ike Watched, and Obama Tweeted. I also wrote my dissertation, which became my first book about intellectuals in the American presidency. So I was really interested in how culture affects our presidents, our polity, and, and our governance. And University of Texas has great programs in American civilization, in history, in government. I took a lot of classes with the LBJ school and then also in in culture. So it was was a really good combination of interests that brought me to Texas. And I was very glad I was there. And then later when I moved to Washington and the George W. Bush administration comes, it was a plus to have a PhD from the (laughs) University of Texas. I bet. I've always felt that in terms of pure intelligence, among the American presidents, it's hard to beat John Quincy Adams. Now, that was a long time ago. He was he was the sixth president, so you're talking a couple hundred years. But how important has just raw intellect been not only to successful candidacies, but successful presidencies? And I say that, of course, in John Quincy Adams only one one time. Yeah, and, and he didn't win the majority of the popular vote the first time. And he didn't actually didn't win a majority of the electoral vote either. He won a plurality of the electoral vote and then defeated Andrew Jackson in what was known as the corrupt bargain. So uh, intelligence helps. Sure, certainly, you don't, you don't want to have dumb presidents. But uh, I think about, you, you, you know, I would agree that John Quincy Adams was probably the smartest president of the 19th century. Um, Jefferson would be up there, too. But the smartest president of the 20th century was Jimmy Carter didn't have a great tenure either. Uh, Jimmy Carter was a nuclear engineer. I mean, the guy was, you know, he was not dumb by any means, but he was a micromanager and he just didn't know how to run the presidency. In fact, there's a great legendary joke that mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan has a dream in 1980. And in the dream, Jimmy Carter comes to him and says, Ronnie, why do you want my job? And Reagan says, I don't want your job, Jimmy. I want to be president. <laughs> he was seen as a micromanager, but how much of that is of, of Jimmy Carter's uh, 
reputation. The famous story is obviously that he scheduled the White House tennis court. But how much of that is is overrated and how much of that is accurate? So on the tennis courts, there are different aides who will say different things. James Fallows, who famously reported that story in The Atlantic, swears by it. But Stu Eisenstadt, who was a closer aide to Carter, denies it. But either way, it really did fit into this perception of Carter as a micromanager. And one of his cabinet secretaries, Joe Califano, did say Mm. that Jimmy Carter is the highest paid assistant secretary of planning in the government because he would get involved (laughs) in writing up legislation. And that is not a question. That's not a controversial claim. And I think it does prove that Carter was a micromanager. He also, he didn't want to have a chief of staff. He wanted to be involved in the details. And I think it hurt him. In contrast that, which if you're, if, if people listening are old enough to remember was as Clark Clifford, who was secretary of defense under Lyndon Johnson and was close to Truman. Uh, He ended up getting, I think indicted, but maybe not convicted. I can't remember uh, in, um, financial irregularities uh, case in the eighties famously referred to Ronald Reagan as an amiable dunce yet Ronald Reagan won 489 electoral votes in 1980 and 525 in 1984. So when you are perceived or accused of being not intellectual, does that mean that you're also underestimated and therefore have a greater chance of success? Oh, I think that there is something to that. Look, look, I think there's a bias against Republican presidents and that there's this perception that they're all dumb. People said that Eisenhower was dumb and Ford was dumb and Reagan was dumb and George W. Bush was dumb. They can't all have been dumb. It's just not true. It's just not possible. But I think Reagan especially and Eisenhower did like this idea of being underestimated. And George W. Bush, too, he said he gets misunderestimated is the the famous funny line. And I I think that there's a story about Reagan that one time he's reading a serious work of nonfiction. And his press secretary, Marlon Fitzwater, comes to him and he says, Mr. President, I'd like to let the press know that you're reading this book. So they think that you're not reading Louis L'Amour novels all the time. And Reagan (laughs) says... You know, I don't think we need to do that, Marlon, because Reagan wanted to convey the sense that he was a man of the people and he was plenty smart and he read lots of books, but he didn't want to appear airy or above the people. He wanted to be one of the people. I think Eisenhower did the same thing, too. In your litany of Republican presidents in the last half of the 20th century who were perceived as, as unintelligent, I noticed you omitted Nixon, whom I think is one of the most brilliant perhaps misguided presidents we've ever had. No one, as I recall, in all the books I've read about him have ever questioned his intelligence, but rather his motives and judgment. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I pointedly left Nixon out and you caught me (laughs) and uh, as as you were supposed to, Uh, I'm not trying to play the hide the ball or anything, but Nixon, the people who hated him did not accuse him of being dumb. They just accused him of being evil. (laughs) (laughs) Who was it who said of Franklin Roosevelt, he has a second-class intellect, but a first-class temperament? Did I get that quote correct? You, you did get that quote correct, and it was um, it was a Supreme Court justice. A Supreme Court justice, yeah. yes. Was it, was it Brandeis? No, not Brandeis. But uh, regardless. Supreme Court justices. Regardless. It might have been Jackson. Robert Jackson. Anyway, moving on. Uh, does it – do you agree with that statement? I mean, supposedly Roosevelt got a gentleman C at Harvard, so he wasn't necessarily somebody who was hitting the books all the time. Uh, but he did know how to work with people. He knew how to comfort the American people. The, um, the radio addresses were a great way of getting over the heads of the media and speaking directly to the people. So he was he was clearly a very savvy politician. I didn't list him as one of the smartest presidents of the 20th century because I don't think he was, but he was certainly a, a very smart and savvy politician. Well, unless I believe it's still true that Woodrow Wilson is the only president to have earned a Ph.D., yet his reputation is in the midst of a hailstorm. Uh, what do you think of, of Wilson's intellect? And 
by any standard, he was an inveterate racist and, and he's being canceled somewhat these days. And the leaders and legends podcast, we try not to stray into politics because it's, it's really not the point of it, but, but how, what are your feelings as someone who've worked in federal government have studied presidents that we are now judging these men, uh, 80, 100, 200 years later. You know, George W. Bush, for whom I worked, used to say when asked about his historical reputation, he said, they're still writing books about the first George W. So I'll let history <laughs> be the judge. And I think that uh, I, th- I think Wilson is a very interesting test case because what you've had in recent years is there were presidents who got uh, kind of reevaluated. Think about Eisenhower when Fred Greenstein wrote The Hidden Hand Presidency. And he, he kind of, he got an improvement in what his reputation was. Similarly with Truman in the McCulloch book. So sometimes these presidents are, are raised in the estimation of historians and then later the public by later uh, scholarship. Uh, with Wilson, he's been taking hits. I think they're appropriate hits. I think there are plenty of people who thought Wilson was pro- problematic even beforehand. Uh, he clearly was a racist. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I think he was also uh, dishonest. And I think that uh, as somebody who studied how presidents deal with disasters and wrote a, a book about how presidents deal with disasters and even a chapter on pandemics, I mean, Wilson and his reaction to the Spanish flu of 1918 was just horrific. I mean, he really did nothing. He tried to suppress information about it from going around. He obviously didn't have the tools that we have today, so it would be unfair to judge him on today's standards. But uh, 650,000 Americans died in that flu, the average life expectancy went down by a decade. And this current coronavirus that we're going through is obviously quite terrible, uh, but the the deaths are disproportionately among the elderly with this coronavirus. In that one, they were disproportionately among the young. And so it had an even greater impact on our country and our society. And uh, Wilson was uh, was definitely found wanting in that situation. Why the young? It had to do with the immune systems. The stronger your immune system it was the stronger its reaction to the virus and that the immune system overreaction, if you will, ended up killing people. We're talking to Tevi Troy, used to work at the White House and was Deputy Secretary of Health, but he's on today to talk about his books. We just finished talking about uh, his book about intellectuals and the American presidency. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, Lincoln did not have much of a formal education, but was intuitively brilliant and uncommonly wise. Where would you put him in the pantheon of intellectuals and the presidency? Yeah, well, one thing you'd have to add with Lincoln was that he was incredibly widely read also. Uh, Even as a young boy, there are stories about him walking miles to get a book, and he would read books over and over again, and he he practically memorized the King James Bible. He knew Shakespeare incredibly well. If there was a book anywhere within reach, he was going to be getting it and reading it and absorbing it. He knew Aesop's fables, cold. So uh, I think Lincoln was really one of the top intellects we've had as president, one of the best writers, as our mutual friend Craig Furman has talked about. And, uh, you know, it's true he didn't have a formal education. Harry Truman also, he's the last president not to go to college, uh, but he was a real autodidact. And it's a great thing that you can learn your way to learning and uh, you make your way to learning via, via reading. Uh, and it's not just getting a fancy university education and that gets you there. Uh, just w- one point of clarification, my book, Intellectuals in the American Presidency, is really a look at the White House aides who were intellectuals who served presidents and not necessarily the presidents themselves who were intellectuals. And so it, it starts with the era of the White House staff. And so it really goes from Kennedy uh, and all the way, th- I wrote it in the Bush, I finished it in the Bush administration, so that's where it goes to. Is it safe to say the apex of people, of intellectuals who worked in the White House would sit Daniel Patrick Moynihan? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he's on the cover of my book, Intellectuals in the American Presidency. He served in the Nixon administration, very smart guy, had a PhD. He was a Democrat serving in a Republican administration. And interestingly, he used to write memos to Nixon saying that I'm serving as your intellectual, but you need to develop and cultivate Republican intellectuals. You can't always count on the Democrats to do it for you. And what you saw in the Reagan White House was suddenly you had this explosion of think tank people serving in the administration, not just in kind of this White House 
intellectual position that I talked about, Marty Anderson, I argue, had that role. But people up and down in line positions at the agencies and throughout the White House, lots of intellectuals served in the Reagan administration, and they were just inspired by Reagan's intellectual conservative message. I just ordered a new – actually, I didn't order it because I already have it, but a book on Kissinger as a political figure. Did you did you get the sense that, that Kissinger brought an, a new level of intellectual heft and, and prominence to the role of Secretary of State? Oh, absolutely. The previous intellectuals that I studied, so, such as Arthur Schlesinger, he served in the White House as kind of intellectual gadfly. He wasn't really in a line position. He helped out with speeches and he did some liaison work, but he wasn't doing hardcore policy work, kind of like Kissinger was at National Security Council and then later as Secretary of State. And he was actually both National Security Advisor and Secretary of State at the same time, the only man to hold both roles at the same time. So yeah, Kissinger definitely brought the sense that you can get a PhD and go to Washington and, and do all these types of jobs. And it was one of the inspirations for me in terms of getting a PhD and then going to work in Washington when I did end up working in, in the White House. You mentioned a few minutes ago that your family fled Europe. Please tell us a little more about that. So both of my parents, uh, my mom has passed this year, but my dad's still with us. Both my parents were born in America, but all four of the grandparents spoke with accents. None of them were born in America. They came from Russia and or Poland. And my grandfather was actually drafted or um, <laughs> forced drafted, I guess, into uh, the Polish army in World War I. And at one point, the, his unit was being deployed to the front. And he hid under a table when they were deployed and then escaped from Poland in some kind of hay cart and made it to Canada. And that whole unit that was deployed to the front, I'm sure they were, they were wiped out because it was not a good place to be in World War I. So I think there's a real recognition that by coming to America, we found a new promise for the Troy family. And I'm grateful to America for that. Another book that you've written is Shall We Wake the President? Two Centuries of Disaster Management from the Oval Office. How prepared generally are White Houses, Oval Office, presidents, their staff for disasters? And how did you qualify an event as a disaster for your book? It's a great question. Let me take the second part first, which is if let's say there's a pileup on I-70 and five people die. It's a tragedy, but it's not a disaster. It doesn't have ripple effects that go beyond the local, the locality of the event. So what I was talking about with disasters were things that were of national import. So 9-11 is something that affected the whole nation. Coronavirus, obviously something that affects the whole nation. And those are the kinds of things that I was trying to look at in the book. I think for the most part, administrations are not prepared. I give advice in the book for how to be better prepared. And I think that you need to do these tabletop and gaming exercises to make sure you know what your role is when a disaster happens. But it's very hard to be fully prepared. I think you can have a strategic national stockpile like we do, and you can have a flu plan like we do and still be caught in the coronavirus disaster. So with respect to coronavirus specifically, the strategic national stockpile, in which we spend over half a billion dollars maintaining every year, it's supposed to have all these countermeasures for a variety of diseases, it is useless if when the disaster strikes, you don't have a countermeasure that works for that particular pathogen. And that's what happened with coronavirus. We didn't have a vaccine or an antiviral that worked for it. We have vaccines for flu and we have antivirals for flu and for a whole host of other diseases. I can't really get into the specifics of it because it's, it's, it's classified, but we just didn't have what we needed for coronavirus. And it showed and 400,000 Americans are, are dead and uh, it's a really difficult situation. And this is despite the fact that in the Bush administration, President Bush said we need to be prepared for this kind of thing and did come up with a flu plan and did help bolster the national stockpile. So you can have preparations done, but it doesn't necessarily mean you'll be prepared. Is part of the problem the fact that you're just so busy managing the day to day and then the tactical problems that come up, that it's hard to make time for the sort of long-range planning that's required in disaster management. I, I think there's something to that. And, uh, you know, I know there was some noise during the first impeachment trial of Trump that 
uh, you're taking the president's attention on this. And this is why when coronavirus was um, already starting to emerge and uh, Tom Cotton, I know, talked about it on the Senate floor. I think presidents are focused on the immediacy of the now. And sometimes they lose sight of the preparation work that's kind of less sexy, doesn't make headlines. And you don't know if you're doing preparation for hurricanes and you get hit with a flu, then it seems like it's wasted effort and vice versa. If you're working on flu and the hurricane hits, it seems like it was wasted effort. So it's, it's very hard to be a winner in preparation, but preparation allows you to be a winner when a disaster strikes. Which president handled which disaster the best? I actually have in the appendix in the appendix of Shall We Wake the President a list of the five best presidents at handling disaster. And let me just say I give Bill Clinton high marks there for the the, the famous um, millennium bug where people talked about Y2K and our computer mm. systems might go down. And he spent a lot of time and resources working on federal, state, and local efforts to make sure that our code was up to speed so that we wouldn't have complete and major crashes when the millennium started in 2000, the, the, the basic gist of this was that our computer systems were prepared for two digits, 98, 99, but it didn't know what to do with four digits, meaning the, the year 2000, and they thought there might be some major crashes there. So Clinton worked with the federal government, he worked with the state and locals, but he also worked with the private sector to make sure that they were ready for it. And there was no millennium bug disaster. Now, for all we know, it might never have happened. Maybe the preparatory right. efforts were, were not helpful. But I think he put a lot of effort into making sure that we were prepared and that we weren't going to be caught by surprise by it. So prevention is usually the best in this case. So I give Clinton high marks in that regard. Yeah, the Y2K uh, drama seems like many, many lifetimes ago compared to what we've encountered since then. Was there a time when the president was not awakened when he should have been? Yeah, I mean, the, the title of the book, Shall We Wake the President, really comes from this this ad that Hillary Clinton did about Obama in 2016, where she shows a phone ringing at 3 a.m. and who do you want there to answer the phone? And it was a kind of a knock on Obama's youth and inexperience. But this whole idea of waking the president and did you wake him, should you have woken him, really comes from an incident in 1981 when these two F-14 U.S. jets shot down two Libyan MiG fighters. And the MiGs were Soviet-made planes, but they were being flown by um, by Libyan pilots. And this was late at night. And initially, Ed Meese, who was the counselor to the president and was handling the issue, initially did not wake up Reagan because he wanted to get more information. A few hours later, when he had more information, he did wake up Reagan. But the reporters asked, when you heard about this, did you wake Reagan? And he did not. And there was a lot of blowback on that. Uh, Nancy Reagan was unhappy with the press. And Ed Meese's rivals in the administration, specifically Jim Baker and Mike Deaver, kind of elbowed him out of his foreign policy responsibilities as a result of his decision not to wake Reagan at that time. And since then, it's been a standard media question. If something happens late at night, did you wake the president? And it fed the the media narrative of, of Reagan or the popular perception that he was just kind of last lackadaisical and kind of sleep. What, what was the Haynes Johnson book sleepwalking through history? Maybe <laughs> if I have that quote, right. Or I have the title, right. It kind of yeah. fed into a narrative uh, much like the false claim that uh, George HW Bush didn't recognize a, a grocery store scanner when what he was being shown was a completely different uh, bit of technology. How much and does to be fair, just one point on that is that um, Reagan was in his seventies and he was slowing down a bit. And um, so uh, there is some justification for this concern about this. This was early in his term, so um, maybe he was around seven. Well, and he, and he, he had been shot. Right, and he had been shot. Uh, so there was that. And, and Nancy Reagan was uh, one of the reasons that Meese was reluctant to wake Reagan was that Nancy was jealously protective of Reagan's sleep. And she wanted to make sure he got naps and that he wasn't interrupted at night, and that he got enough hours of sleep. And in fact, she used to constantly say, I want you horizontal, which kind of became a joke about, among the White House aides. <laughs> <laughs> was there a time when uh, the president was awakened and, and, and he shouldn't have been? In other words, is there... How important is it that the the president himself, or maybe he and the first lady, create a culture where aides 
do what they have to do. Yeah. Look, there's this famous story of Obama being awakened to be told, and this is early in 29, that he had won the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> and even Obama, when he was awakened, said for what? I mean, he wasn't sure why, why, he, won, <laughs> why he was awakened for it, but what be why he won the prize, because he, he just started being president. And uh, it just kind of showed the uh, just the, the bias of the, the Nobel Committee. Uh, it wouldn't shock me if uh, Joe Biden wins a uh, Nobel Peace Prize just for not being Trump sometime in the near future. Is there a a blueprint uh, based on your White House experience and federal government experience? Is there a blueprint, a playbook of do's and don'ts of how to manage a, a disaster? Because I would guess that so much of managing a disaster is is climbing aboard a bunch of debris with a bullhorn in your hand. In other words, what George W. Bush did at the rubble of the Twin Towers projected this this image of leadership, take charge. We're going to get these guys. How important is the perception, the kind of what the cameras see, and then how important is the back room and all the sort of logistics that happen when you're dealing with a crisis? Yeah, well, first I would say that there is a blueprint and it's called, shall we make the president? And I have an appendix in there where I give specific advice for presidents on how to handle this and, and also specific advice about which kind of disasters you should get involved in and which ones you, you shouldn't. And also I specifically list who they're best and worst at it. So uh, I would urge all policymakers, people who are going to senior positions of government where disaster is part of your portfolio to look at shall we the president. And I happen to know for a fact that there have been heads of Homeland Security and heads of HHS who have had that book on, on their, on their bookshelf in their office. So that's one thing. Uh, but I think you're really right, Robert, to get to this idea of the message and the feelings that a president conveys in times of a disaster. A president doesn't make the vaccine. A president doesn't develop the coronavirus test. A president doesn't drive the boat that picks people up in a flood. But a president communicates to the nation about the extent of the challenge they're fight- facing, teaches them that they shouldn't be panicking, but they should be actually sober-minded about what, what is ahead of them, and tells them that the federal government is, is on the job. And if the president's doing those things, they generally are doing a good job with the disaster. And if a president seems to be either giving false information or misleading information or insufficient information, that's when you start to have problems. And so communication is so much an important part of what the president does. And then also behind the scenes, managing the various pieces of the puzzle of federal disaster management when managing a disaster and we'll move on to your another book i want to discuss of yours when managing a disaster how important is it to know when to tell the truth and when not to i think you always have to tell the truth that doesn't mean you have to tell all the information doesn't mean you have to reveal classified information (laughs) you know there's that legendary saturday night live skit about colin powell in the first gulf war where there were a, a guy was playing Colin Powell and the reporters or the fake reporters were saying, so exactly when and where are you going to attack the Iraqis? And you know, what is your battle plan? And you know, can you tell us exactly what time things are going to happen? And Colin Powell just laughs at them and says, no, I'm not going to be doing that. So you know, the, there is a right to know, but there's not necessarily a right to know everything at all times. But if you're president, you've got to tell the truth. And if you don't tell the truth, it really leads to credibility issues. And I think we saw a little bit of this, uh, and this isn't, I'm not putting this on the president, but on the on the federal government, uh, with the mask issue. The push from the federal public health people in early February and in early March was, don't wear masks, people. And later they admitted that they were saying, don't wear masks because they wanted to save the masks for themselves and the frontline healthcare workers. And then later, when they changed the guidance and said, wear masks, people could point to the previous state and say, don't wear masks and masks don't help. And so I think what they, they would have been better off saying, look, we have a real crunch on masks. So we want to try and preserve these masks, certainly the N95s for frontline healthcare workers. But if you can come up with alternative masks or you can fashion a mask or you can sew a mask, we all encourage you to do that. And I think we wouldn't have had the big mask wars of 2020, which were really an embarrassment without that initial problem. Speaking of telling the truth or maybe not opting to do so, was there in your study of presidents and presidential history, was there ever a point 
at which Richard Nixon could have told the truth about Watergate and survived? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, in some ways, um, maybe not telling the truth would have helped in terms of uh, if he had just um, burned all the tapes without disclosing that the tapes existed, uh, maybe that would have helped. Uh, I'm not recommending that that was the right thing to have done, but if you're talking about what could have led to his survival, that might have been a better approach. And also, look, if the the old story in Washington is not the crime, but the cover-up that gets you. And so if they didn't try and cover it up, I think he would have been in, in much better shape. So I think there were there were two things, one positive and one negative that he could have done. Positive, just own up to whatever relationship he had with the plumber's unit early on and say we made a mistake and allow the, the people who broke into the Watergate to be prosecuted. That would have been one. But the other is later on, before the tapes were released, to just burn them all. And obviously, I'm not recommending burning everything. But I think if you want to talk about two inflection points, how Nixon could have survived, those are two ways he could have done it. And it was just four months after, four or five months after winning 521 electoral votes, 49 states, that it started to get unraveled with the um, resignations of Haldeman and Ehrlichman. And I'm going to ask you about that in just a little bit. But for, for the tape, if you've ever read anything about Nixon or watched sort of the HBO special about it that has actual Nixon recordings, it's amazing that Kissinger didn't know he was being recorded. Pat Nixon didn't know she was being recorded. There were just three or four of them who knew that the tape system was in existence. And it's it's astounding to me that they were able to keep that secret until, ironically, future Republican senator and Law and Order star Fred Thompson asked Alexander Butterfield, "Are you do you know of any existence of tape? Rec-? And that just blew the whole thing wide open. Yeah, although Butterfield fed the information to Fred Dalton Thompson beforehand. So Thompson he, knew to ask the question. Like a good lawyer, he knew the answer. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest on the Leaders and Legends podcast today is Tevi Troy. He's a Ph.D., He's written several books. He's worked at the White House and in D.C. and here in Indianapolis. He's been here many times, lived here for a while. Or Talk us a little bit about your experience here in Indianapolis and, and what brought you here. I was working on my Ph.D. in the early 90s in University of Texas, and I was done with my classwork and my oral exams, which are this uh, very comprehensive exam where you have to read hundreds of books in a year and then four professors test you on them. And I was up to the point where I had to just write the dissertation. So I didn't need to be in Austin. And the Hudson Institute, which at the time was headquartered in Indianapolis, had this fellowship called the Herman Kahn Fellowship that they offered to people who were writing their PhD dissertations. And I applied for and won. And they said, with the fellowship, you work half-time at Hudson headquarters and halftime, you're supposed to work on your dissertation. And so really having never been to Indianapolis, I agreed to go and I lived there for over a year and I really loved it. I had a great time there and I did get my dissertation written and I made a lot of good friends there, including our mutual friend, Gary Geipel, but some other people who I'm still friends with to this day. So I really enjoyed my time in Indianapolis and and it's a terrific city. But uh, when I was done with the dissertation, I ended up moving to Washington uh, in part because I was interested in, in federal government and all the things we can talk about in this, but also because I was in my late 20s and unmarried. And at the time, it did not seem like there were that many single people in their late 20s in Indianapolis and there were no apps <laughs> that could help you meet them if they were there. <laughs> I should mention, he mentioned, uh, he said the name of uh, Dr. Gary Geipel, who uh, I was a research assistant. Uh, in the mid nineties at the Hudson Institute, he basically just gave me a bunch of books and said, read these and let me know what you think about them. And the Hudson Institute was located. If I, if I have this right at the old Fletcher mansion from American Fletcher national bank uh, off of Emerson, it's this beautiful building It's beautiful home. I don't know what it is now, but you go, it's majestic. And uh, you certainly felt smarter when you walked in the Hudson Institute. Yeah. We called it the castle. It was a great place to work. And uh, there were tennis courts on the premises and, um, uh, you know, they had a nice dining room and it was, it was just a, it was just a terrific uh, think tank environment. And Mitch Daniels had just left, I believe. 
had he not. Yeah, and Les Lankowski, who still lives in the, in the Indianapolis area, uh, was the president of it and later went to uh, become a professor at IU. And uh, it, was, it was just a great place to be around smart, thoughtful people who really cared about important policy issues. And I, I learned a lot from them. Another one of Dr. Troy's books is What Jefferson Read, Ike Watched, and Obama Tweeted, 200 Years of Popular Culture in the White House. And I'll post his website so you'll be able to look at all these books and, and purchase these books. But to me, pop the, the apex of, of popular culture in the White House is Nixon and Elvis. Is there anything that tops that in your mind? And, and more broadly speaking, what, what led you to write this book? Yeah, I was always interested in how culture shapes presidents. What, what the things that are put in a president's head lead to policy and how presidents approach governing and how they approach their, their, uh, their politic work, politics work. And so I started to write something about books presidents read. And then I took the same model and did it to what pre- what movies presidents watched. And then I had to give a speech at one point and I combined the two. And somebody who was in the audience said, why don't you make a book out of this? So I went beyond just movies and books, but also looked at plays and television and looked at the evolution of culture in this country, largely through technological changes and improvements, and saw how that impacted the presidency, but also saw how it gave presidents opportunities to convey their thoughts to the American people. It's called what Jefferson watched, uh, what Jefferson read, Ike watched, and Obama tweeted to show this evolution of technology. It used to be, it was a kind of passive thing you could read, but the the book you're reading is an inert thing. I know words come alive on the page, but uh, it's just immobile. It it is. And then later you have moving images uh, in terms of Ike watching. And then later you have the ability to broadcast your own views to the American people, whether it's via radio or later television and today via Twitter. So that evolution of technology and its impact on culture was the thing I studied in that book. And uh, it was one of my favorite books that I've written and it actually was a bestseller and I really enjoyed that process. Would Donald Trump have been president without Twitter? No, (laughs) I can give a longer answer, but it's a one word answer. (laughs) No, I no, I agree. And would he still be president? without Twitter? Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, it It's actually an interesting thought. A friend of mine named Ken Baer, who worked in the Clinton and Obama White Houses, wrote a piece recently where he argued that presidents and their aides and people in the federal government just shouldn't tweet and that you should take away their Twitter when they become president. And it's, it's a pretty smart idea. And I think if Trump had lost his Twitter account. And if you just said presidents can't tweet, maybe he would, he would have done a little better as president. He certainly said some outrageous and problematic things on Twitter, some of which led to uh, his impeachment, that first accusation of Obama bugging him, I think kind of led us down the path on the Russia investigation. So uh, I, I think Twitter certainly caused him some problems. It is weird now how oddly silent he is. You take away Twitter and you almost hear nothing from him. And uh, do you think that he got a sense that that much like FDR's fireside chats and Ronald Reagan's, uh, I think they were Saturday morning radio addresses. And then you push forward to uh, Donald Trump and Twitter that they're trying to get around the national news media and talk directly to either Americans as a whole or their supporters, supporters specifically. Absolutely. That is 100% the intent. In fact, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, before he was president, when he was governor, he used to speak on radio because he would get around the Republican editors of the major newspapers in New York. People who follow the media today know that it's really unlikely that uh, editors of major newspapers will be Republican today. But back then, that's what uh, FDR was trying to get around and he used TV. I'm sorry, he used radio to get directly to the American people. And it's basically the same principle that, that Donald Trump followed. He got around the media and he went directly to the American people via his Twitter. So much of the presidency and popular culture basically involves 
whether it's a capital R or a lowercase r, metaphorically, the ridiculing of the president. Um, Saturday Night Live has been masterful at this kind of no matter where your parties are. I think they take harder swings at Republicans and Democrats, but that's even something that um, that was admitted by uh, Saturday Night Live and its founder that they 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 take harder swings at Republicans because they just don't want to hear from their friends <laughs> when they make fun of Democrats. But starting with Chevy Chase, basically portraying Gerald Ford as a clumsy, bumbling idiot, all the way through Will Ferrell and George W. and and Alec Baldwin. How important is it, and maybe it's not, for for presidents to be made fun of in the popular culture so that they maybe stay humble or maybe understand that their power is somewhat limited? Yeah, it's interesting. And I do talk about that exact development you're talking about with Saturday Night Live in in my book, What Jefferson Read, I Watched and Obama Tweeted. But in the 1960s, it was not cool and not allowed by the censors to mock presidents on TV. And there were a number of instances that I talk about in the book where people tried to make fun of, let's say, Lyndon Johnson family. And it was just, it was not, it was, it was not permitted. Uh, in the Kennedy administration, there was a guy named Vaughn Meter who used to do this impression of Kennedy. He was very gentle, uh, but he had to do it via record albums and not on TV because that, that's the way he was able to convey it because he, he could get away around the censors. And there's a legendary Le- Lenny Bruce joke that after Kennedy's tragic assassination in 1963, Lenny Bruce gets out there, completely silent audience. Everybody's upset about the assassination. And Lenny Bruce has this long, painful pause where he just sits there silently. And then finally he says, boy, Vaughn Meter is screwed. <laughs> because that was really the end of Vaughn Meter's career. And it's true, he became an alcoholic and died not long after. I mean, his career was over when Kennedy died. But over time, it became more acceptable to mock the presidents. And I think it's not coincidental that Saturday Night Live starts when there's a Republican in office, namely Gerald Ford, and, and they mock him. And then it's seen as something that they do. And so they did, you know, they, they have mocked Democrats over the years. I think of uh, um, Daryl Hammond, who would do his Clinton impersonation. Uh, but they're much, much more gentle on the, the Democrats. Uh, but, but I do think it's important for presidents to see how they are viewed. You know, there's a famous story about Al Gore's terrible debate performance in 2000 when he was making eyes and rolling his eyes and making faces at George W. Bush. And Saturday Night Live mocked, Bush, mocked Gore for the, his performance in that debate. And Gore's staff shows him the mockery oh. of Saturday Night Live so oh. that he knows to dial it down a little bit in the subsequent debates. And he dialed it down a little too much in the second debate. And then in the third debate, he kind of dials it up again and he stalks Bush on stage and Bush gives him that famous head check that led to, to the American people saying, okay, we can have this guy as commander in chief and uh, help Bush win a narrow election. How, how much do presidents influence popular culture as opposed to just participating in it? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I do think that presidents can influence popular culture. Uh, you think about uh, Bill Clinton uh, putting on sunglasses and the, uh, the saxophone on the Arsenio Hall show. Um, I think uh, o- Obama is someone that there was a lot of um, uh, cultural imitation of. I, I think specifically uh, Clinton. Also, you look at the West Wing. I mean, that was a show based on a president that was a combination of Kennedy and Clinton without any of their flaws. Right. So there's no womanizing uh, on that show by the president, but uh, uh, he does all the other things that Kennedy and, and Clinton would do. So, yeah, I, I think that um, presidents can be hugely influential in, in pop culture. We have the last few minutes here with Tevi Troy, who has written several books, and I'm going to get to your last one because I think it's the title itself is fascinating. Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. I've had this discussion several times with reporters, you know, a lot of the kind of, and not just reporters, but the common theme is, you know, why can't the parties get along? You know, Republicans and Democrats are always at each other's throats. And why don't you just come together and and look past partisanship for your own sake and do what's best for the country? And my standard reply, which has never been refuted by anyone I've ever met in politics. And I've been doing this 20 plus years, right? I'm not that old, but I'm not that young. The real feuds are within the parties. 
they're not between the parties. It's Republicans and Republicans holding on to grudges for decades against each other, just like Democrats do against each other. I, I've never I've never encountered it between the parties like I have the fights inside the family. How does that or refute me, please? How does that come out in your book? And specifically, I would like you to address, if you could, the greatest intra-political feud of all time, and that's between Robert Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. Well, first of all, I'm not going to refute you because there's no refutation. <laughs> the nastiest, bitterest, ugliest fights are between people on the same side. And that's what I talk about in the book Fight House, and that's what Fight House is really about. You know, the fact that Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump don't like each other, big deal, right? I mean, <laughs> the different parties are not supposed to like each other. They don't really interact much in social circles. Uh, they don't work in the same offices. Uh, and, and they actually went months at a time without talking. But in the White House, you're there. I mean, the West Wing is small. It's cramped. And you can't avoid people. And people who dislike you, they are, um, and you know, whom you dislike, they're showing up in the same meeting over and over and over again. They're in your face. You see them all the time. <laughs> and it leads to some some real nastiness. So uh, that's what Fight House is all about. And uh, you're right that some of these feuds go on decades. Some of them go on across multiple administrations. Uh, sometimes they go on past administrations. In fact, I just wrote an article uh, for the D.C. Examiner this week about what happens to these feuds after the administration ends. Do you ever get reconciliation or do you get continued hatred? And one story I tell is there was a guy named Robert Hartman, who was a very difficult character and was involved in many fights in the Ford administration. And Al Haig was briefly the chief of staff in the Ford administration. And I have the story there that 35 years after Haig was no longer chief of staff, after he no longer worked with Hartman, he could still get red faced and sputtering mad if the name Hartman came up. So these grudges, they stay <laughs> active for a long time and uh, try not to get involved in one because it doesn't go away so easily. Well, a lot of these folks are in Washington for their whole lives, right? So. I mean, there are plenty of people who worked in the Truman administration who end up advising Lyndon Johnson. I mentioned Clark Clifford earlier. Avril Harriman would be another one. It's the same thing. Reagan through the bushes. And uh, you, you you mentioned the name of the author before we – so I'm going to ask you to do it again. Yes. If you love political history, it's a, it's a – especially if you're Democrat, but it doesn't matter. Buy the book Mutual Contempt. It's one of the best books I've ever read about modern political rivalry, and it's about the relationship between Lyndon Johnson and Robert F. Kennedy. Dr. Troy, talk to me, please, a little bit about that rivalry and where you would put it on the spectrum of just just true hatred. Yeah. Well, let me, let me talk about um, rivalries. I mean, the Lyndon Johnson, Bobby Kennedy is one of the stories I tell in Fight House, but I tell these stories across multiple administrations. And so there's many different stories. So if you kind of like that kind of political nastiness and rivalry, you know, Fight House is the book for you. Uh, that rivalry between Johnson and Kennedy is not only one of the bitterest, but it's also one of the most consequential because it really shapes the 60s in so many ways. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, hated Lyndon Johnson from almost the first minute they met. I tell in the book the story about how Johnson came over and wanted to shake Kennedy's hand. Kennedy tried to snub him. Johnson wouldn't be snubbed and stood there and stood there and stood there until Kennedy finally reluctantly shook his hand. And that was kind of a seen as a win for Johnson, but it was a loss and that he made a bitter lifetime enemy in that moment in Robert F. Kennedy. And the famous line about Kennedy is from his father, Joseph Kennedy, who said, Bobby's my boy. When he hates you, you stay hated. And boy, did Lyndon Johnson stay hated. Uh, but Johnson gave out his hatred as well. And Kennedy is initially on top in the JFK administration because he's the attorney general and Johnson's the kind of ineffectual vice president who is not given much to do. But then when Kennedy when John F. Kennedy is assassinated, suddenly Robert F. Kennedy is the attorney general for a president who doesn't much like him. And Kennedy's kind of on the bottom of the pile then. And then Kennedy leaves and runs for Senate. And Johnson is tormented by Kennedy. And throughout the Vietnam War, he's constantly thinking about what is Kennedy up to when he's trying to make his decisions about the Vietnam War. And he fears that if he pulls back in the Vietnam War, Kennedy is going to attack him from the right for being kind of a softy. But what actually happens is Johnson keeps pressing the case in Vietnam and Kennedy ends up attacking him from the left 
for being hard-hearted and, and prosecuting this unwinnable war. And so Johnson's entire Vietnam strategy is colored by his looking over his shoulder at Robert F. Kennedy the entire time. And it is all based on this bitter, nasty, ugly rivalry that the two of them had. Was there a president who didn't really have, or a rivalry, a, a White House that, that did a better job of kind of suppressing the rivalries? And I mean, I don't remember that Reagan had rivals. I mean, he ran against George H.W. Bush, who then served loyally for eight years as president. But is there someone who's handled it better than others? Well, so the first part of the question, has there been a White House without rivalries? The answer is no. Every White House has these fights, and that's what Fight House is all about. And I urge your listeners to go get a copy because you will not find a boring administration if you're interested in fighting and rivalries. Do some administrations handle it better? I mean, you're you're right that in the Reagan administration, there was plenty of fighting, but uh, Reagan kind of knew what he was doing. And Ed Meese, who is the representative of the conservatives, and Jim Baker was the representative of the so-called moderates, uh, they worked together. They fought. Um, Baker leaked against Meese. Meese kind of unilaterally didn't leak, but they, they were on opposite sides of things. But they were representing the two major perspectives within the conservative part, within the Republican Party, the conservative versus the moderate views. And I think it was important for Reagan to get those two perspectives. So I think Reagan is one who handled it a little better. Uh, I also talk about Bill Clinton, how he brought in after the 1994 election loss when the Democrats lose both houses of Congress for the first time in 40 years. Clinton brings in a more conservative advisor named Dick Morris. And Dick Morris is hated by George Stephanopoulos and the other liberal aides. But later, Stephanopoulos admits that uh, having the more conservative perspective from Morris was actually helpful to Clinton getting better results from his staff. So, yeah, I think the best people are the ones who learn how to acknowledge that there will be rivalry, but manage it in an effective way as opposed to trying to suppress it. Would you give Barack Obama high marks for managing it? He seemed to have done a pretty darn good job for whatever reason. He, The infighting and the sort of post-presidential memoirs of staff and high-level executives doesn't seem to have been as prevalent as it has, say, for Nixon, Reagan, so on and so forth. Yeah, look, Obama had this theory of no drama Obama. He didn't want to see fighting. He made it clear he didn't want to see fighting. He had a largely ideologically aligned staff, so there was less fighting. So, yeah, Obama was actively trying to suppress infighting. But there was plenty of fighting in the Obama administration, but his staff was just less, more disciplined about revealing it and not letting the word get out about it. And even during the, throughout the Obama administration, if you asked somebody who worked there, they said, oh, no, we all get along fine. But if you look at Fight House, if you look at my book, you'll see there's plenty of fighting uh, but I didn't really have access to the information about the fighting until after the administration ended. Do you have a favorite post-presidential memoir? Um, let me say that a different way. Do you have a favorite book by a staff member involving a presidential administration, not from the president himself? Yeah. So the two best books I would recommend are All Too Human by George Stephanopoulos, which is a great look at the Clinton administration and, and Stephanopoulos is, is honest. And in fact, so honest that um, the Clinton staff who stayed on afterwards used to call him ABC news common traitor, George Stephanopoulos, because they didn't like the fact that he revealed so much. Hey, I like that. That's uh, yeah. I have to use that. And, and then the other one is uh, Marty Anderson's book revolution that tells about his time in the Reagan white house, but also gives a sense of the uh, intellectual cross currents that were taking place in the late 70s and early 80s and bringing the conservative movement forward. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is historian and a PhD, Mr. Tevi Troy. You've been very, very kind. I, I've loved this. i got a million more questions, but we're going to end the podcast with the same five questions we ask everybody. So are you ready? I'm ready. What was your first job? My first job was working at the American Enterprise Institute right out of college, and I worked for Ben Wattenberg, who was a Lyndon Johnson speechwriter. Oh, yeah. yeah. I learned a ton from him. I'm still amazed the fact that you took the train from Queens into Manhattan <laughs> every day to go to school. How 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 times have changed in American life. Uh, By myself, I, hour and 15 minutes, no cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> a second question, what was your first concert? My first concert was REO Speedwagon and Cheap Trick 
at the Nassau Coliseum. And uh, there was a guy with a mohawk in front of me. I was about 15 or 16 years old. And the guy with the mohawk in the middle of the concert turns around, puts his face in my face and screams, yeah, 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 yeah. And my friends who were with me say I turned white when it happened. I was so terrified. Hey, that's not a bad concert. That's not a bad first concert at all. Uh, third question. These last three are going to be tough for you as a historian because they always are tough for historians. Um, if you could re- suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? I happen to love this book called Common Ground by J. Anthony Lucas. It's about busing in Boston, but there was a great blurb on the back of it, which said to say this book is about busing in Boston is like saying Moby Dick is about whaling in New Bedford. Uh, It's a book about how elites try to make policy decisions that they imposed on the rest of the people and the people sometimes say, no, we don't want this. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Oh, that is a tough one. Um, I would like to see the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai to Moses. I think that would be a really great moment. See exactly what they look like. Were they those kind of stone tablets? And then also see what happens when Moses comes down from the mountain and sees the sees the Israelites uh, worshiping the golden calf. Does he throw the tablets down? Does lightning strike to, ground open. Uh, I'd love to see that. I thought Cecil B. DeMille showed us all that. Am I I wrong? (laughs) One view of it. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? Oh, that is a good one. You know, I'm, uh, I'm a little torn about this one. I think Bill Clinton would be fascinating and be a lot of fun to to listen to. Um, I'm also curious about Donald Trump. Uh, not my cup of tea in terms of uh, his communication style. But from what I hear, he's kind of a different person when you meet him privately. And I'd just like to gauge that contrast between the public persona and what he's like in, in private. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Dr. Tevi Troy. He's written several books. Uh, I will put the link to his website on the podcast posting so that you can take a look. Please support him and his efforts, as I wish you would support all historians. Thank you, Dr. Troy, for your time today. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Robert at veteranstrategies.com.